And you can go ahead and, if you have your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 12. That's where we're going to be today. Genesis 12. They were upset. Jesus was already a threat to them with his growing popularity, his controversial teaching. But now he was disregarding laws about the Sabbath not laws from God, but man-made tradition that the scribes and Pharisees taught. He was disregarding those rules. And worst of all, he was claiming to be equal with God. And they had had it. And so they confronted Jesus. And when they confronted Jesus, he did not back down. He did not placate them. Now Jesus, he said in response to the scribes and Pharisees, he said, my father sent me to you. So I came from God, and then he said to these guys, he said, and the Father testified about me before I even came. The Father already told you about me. Now, for them in that day, in that moment, they probably were confused. Like, what do you mean the Father told us about you? What do you mean? And then Jesus, he says this to them. Jesus, he says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. And the men he was speaking to, they gave their life to studying and following the Hebrew scriptures. And yet Jesus says to them, you've missed the whole point. Because the point of the Hebrew Bible was and is to point to Jesus. He says, you've missed it. Now, it's, it's easy for us to look down on the Pharisees and the scribes, isn't it? Pharisee bashing is great sport because they've given us a lot of material. But I, I wonder how many of us make the same mistake. I wonder how I make it. Same mistake. I come to my Bible to get understanding and wisdom and insight, and and at times I don't follow it to its end point, which is Jesus. If it's all about him, then we ought to be seeing Jesus every time we open the Bible. How often do we forget that the very beginning of our Bible, Genesis through Revelation, the whole thing's about Christ. You know, for all of us, whether you're a student of the Bible, you've walked with God for 50 years, or you're brand new to faith in Jesus, or maybe you're not even in a relationship with Christ, but you're just curious about faith. For all of us, if the Bible is really about one thing, and that's Jesus, we all ought to be students of that and to learn more and more how can we connect the dots to see Jesus for who he is. Because according to Jesus, this is not a small thing. This is life and death. Because he alone is the source of life. That's what he says in John. And that's true today. So how can we see Jesus clearer that we might experience life change as we look at our Bibles? If you begin reading the Bible in Genesis at the very beginning, it's not long before you meet the person of Abraham. First he's Abram and then his name is changed to Abraham. And Abraham is without question one of the most important characters in the whole Bible and in all of redemptive history. 
just to give you some insight into how important Abraham is. Three of the five largest world religions all claim to be recipients of the promise that God gave to Abraham. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam all believe that they are the recipients of the promise that God gave to Abraham. So Abraham is a big, big deal. And I don't know how much you know about Abraham. Some of you, all you know is that Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. And for some reason, we stick out our arm and right arm, left. Maybe that's all you know. Maybe you know a whole lot about Abraham. But what we need to see about this man in Scripture today is how he points us to Jesus. What about him and his life illuminates the person and work of Christ? That's what we're going to try to to learn today. So in Genesis 12, we're introduced to Abram. We actually meet him at the very end of Genesis 11. But Genesis 12, 1, this is really the first interaction we see Abraham have with anybody. And it begins by saying, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. Now, this must have been a bizarre experience for Abram. God comes to him and says, hey, go to a land I will show you. But we we read quickly through it. I want to point out a few things. First of all, Abram does not know God. He is most likely polytheistic. He's not a God follower. And his first interaction is God coming to him and saying, hey, go. And he's living in a city called Ur of the Chaldees. It's about 186 miles southeast of modern Baghdad on the Euphrates River. And God shows up and says, hey, go. Now, God tells him to leave three things. God says, go to a land I'll show you. And you need to leave your country, which was your land. You need to leave your family or your kindred. We get that. That's your relatives. But then God says, leave your father's house. And leaving your father's house would have been the hardest of the three. In other words, leaving your land, that'd be tough. Leaving your family, that'd be hard. But leaving your father's house would be devastating. You say, why? For us today, the the, the concept of the father's house is not something we're real familiar with. But when Abram was living, you, you had your home, and then your family lived around you, and their relatives around them, and all together you made up what was called a father's household. It's like a compound, a family compound. And the reason why leaving your father's household would be such a big deal is because your father's house was the means of provision and protection for you. There was no 401ks, there's no retirement accounts, There's no government welfare programs. Your father's house, this clan environment, they provided for you. And they protected you too. Listen, there were no local authorities. There weren't even nations at this time. And so leaving your father's household, leaving that support system and structure was a death sentence journeying out into the unknown. This would have been unheard of in Abram's world. Now, I don't know about you, but, but for me, 
this would not have been enough information. God comes to me and says, hey, go and leave all these things behind. End of sentence. I would say, God, I need more information. Like, first of all, who are you? Abram doesn't know anything about God. Maybe, God, where exactly? I mean, could you tell me a little bit geographically where I'm going? When am I going to get there? I have no idea how long this is going to take. And most of all, why? Wouldn't you want to know? Like, God, why? But God doesn't tell him any of that. All God tells Abram in verse 1 is the what. He doesn't tell him the, the when, the how, the where, the why. He just tells him what to do next. He doesn't even tell him what to do in six months or a year. He just says, here's the next step. And this is so instructive for us because we all str- there are so many places in our lives where we don't know what to do. We're in the dark. But the biblical emphasis for the, for the follower of Jesus, for the person of faith, the biblical emphasis is always on obeying what is revealed rather than discerning what is hidden. And, and the Bible is continually pointing us to that reality. I, I remember when I worked at Pine Cove, a Christian camp in Texas, and I was a camp director, and I had 100 college students on my staff, and I remember hearing all the time the question, what is God's will? What is God's will for me? You're wondering that today, maybe. What, what, what is God's will? And young adults tend to ask that more, although we all ask that question, because they're in such a transitional time in life, and so a lot of my staff would say, what is God's will? Is God's will that I should work at camp Again, next summer, is God's will that I should go to college? If so, what college? Is God's will that I should date her or her or her? Is God's will that I should get married? Is God's will that I should study marketing or engineering? And then it's where should I move to? What job should I take? On and on, should I buy a house, et cetera? And as we get older, the questions just change, don't they? But we always want to know, God, what's, what's your will? Which I think is interesting because... Anytime God shows up in the Old Testament and tells people his will, they don't want to do it. <laughs> you know, God comes up, you know, and Moses and Jonah and Jeremiah, all the prophets, they're like running the opposite way. <laughs> so sometimes I'm like, if God really told you his will for you, you wouldn't like it. But, but, but the other thing that we've got to realize, and again, we all wonder, God, what's your will? The other thing we have to realize is that 95% of God's will for you, for me, God's desire, it's laid out in the pages of Scripture. This is what God wants for you and for me. And maybe, and I heard this and I've thought about it over the years, that, that maybe if we are faithful with the 95% we know, then maybe, just maybe, God will be faithful to reveal the other 5% in his timing. See, biblically, the emphasis is on obeying what's been revealed, not discerning what's hidden. So Abram, he, he gets this from God, and he goes miraculously. And he, he, he travels from Ur to Haran, and I want to show you where that was. So this is Ur of the Chaldeans, and he travels up across the Euphrates to Haran. This was a 600-mile trek. That's the distance from here to where Mickey Mouse lives, Orlando, Florida. Walking. Just imagine. Walking. 
And he eventually gets there, and we know from Genesis 11 that Abram, he actually lives in Haran for several years. That's where his father dies. But while he is there, God comes to him a second time. And this is what God says to him. Verse 2, chapter 12. God says, Abram, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now this promise made to Abraham is known as the Abrahamic covenant. What's a covenant? A covenant is a formal binding agreement between two parties. And it dictates relationships, responsibilities, etc. There's six of these in the Hebrew Bible that God makes with his People. Now, the, the first thing we need to see about this covenant is that it is unilateral. So there are two types of covenants. There are unilateral or unconditional covenants, and then there are bilateral or conditional. So in a bilateral covenant, you're saying, I'll do my part if you do your part. But a unilateral covenant says, I'm going to do my part regardless of what you do. It is unconditional. I promise that I will hold up my end of the bargain. Now, what does God promise to Abram? God promises to bless him. This is one of the first glimpses we get into the radical grace of God. Think about this. Abram has done nothing to earn the blessing of God. He's done nothing. And yet God promises to bless him. And there's nothing Abram's done to earn it. There's nothing he can do to lose it. God says, I will Bless you. Now, as we unpack this covenant, this promise, we really need to look through three lenses. So God's promised blessing to Abram. First, there's a personal dimension to this. God says, I will bless you. I will make your name great. And God did that. I mean, we're still talking about the name of Abraham thousands of years later. We're singing songs about it. So there's a personal dimension. There's also a national dimension to the promise because God says, I'll make you into a great nation and that is the nation Israel of which Abraham is the patriarch. So God does that. Now the third dimension of this promise, this covenant, is a universal dimension because God says to him, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All peoples of all nations. Now that, you know, for Abram, for the people of God in the Old Testament, they may have scratched their heads and said, how is that going to work out? And we're going to learn about that today. But, but, but the key behind all these different aspects of this promise is, is blessing. God is promising to bless Abram and his descendants and the whole world through Abram. Now, that word blessing has lost some of its weight in our culture today. We don't say Blessing or bless, except after a sneeze or after a little bit of gossip, we say, bless her heart, you know. <laughs> that, that word has lost its gravity. But when Abram was living, listen, blessing was tangible. Blessing, it, it, it involved getting land or supplies or protection or food. Blessing could be the difference between life and death. And here is what's profound, and this just jumped out to me as I was reading this text, that the way blessing came when Abram was living, the way that blessing came was typically from where it was through your father's house. That was your means of provision, of protection, of blessing. 
in a sense, listen, God is saying to Abram, you've left your father's house and I will be your father. I'll take care of you. I will bless you. Isn't that profound to see? Now, the the blessing to Abram and his descendants is rich, but there's one other thing about this promise we have to understand, and it's that the blessings are not just for Abram. God makes it very clear, I am blessing you so that you will be a blessing to other people. In other words, these blessings, Abram, that I'm giving you, they're not supposed to stop with you. They're supposed to move through you to others. And we see this through the whole Old Testament and the New Testament too, that God is always in the business of blessing people so that they will be a blessing to others. That is what God is doing today. It's what he's done in your life and my life. God blesses us so that we will be a blessing to other people. And that's true of our material resources and the blessings God's given us to enjoy relationships, but that's also true spiritually. That there's something about knowledge of God and of the gospel that ought to compel us to pass it on. That we are to be not just receivers, but reproducers. Let me say it this way. Life in Christ comes to us on its way to someone else. It's never supposed to stop with you and with me. And last year, I had the, the privilege of going to Rwanda for a week and spending some time with some local pastors and doing some biblical training there. And I felt like most of the week, I was just learning from them. I mean, from these men and, and women and just their incredible faith. But, but one of the things that you see, if you, if you get to be in a context like that, that's amazing, is the way in which these pastors, these students, the way in which they receive the word of God. It's with such eagerness, it's with such receptivity, such humility. I mean, as you're teaching them, you see the tops of their heads a lot more than you see their eyes because they're just taking notes like crazy. Why? Because listen, they are under no illusion that they're getting all this knowledge and it's just for them. They believe that they have an obligation, there's a weight of responsibility to take this training that I am getting and to pass it on to my people. And so I better write down what I'm hearing because I'm responsible to take this on. I'm not just a receiver, I'm a reproducer. And it's easy to romanticize a context like that, but it's, it's describing part of what God says in Genesis 12, which is his heart for us today. That spiritually, our orientation to learning, to receiving the blessing of God is always Okay, how can I reproduce? How can I be a conduit of this to other people? So God, he, he makes this incredible promise. Abram receives it. And then we read in verse four that he went as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He was no spring chicken. 75 years old. He took his wife Sarah, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan. This was about a 450-mile journey to get to Canaan. Quite a journey for a 75-year-old 
We read in the next verse, Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. So, so again, just look at this visually. Abram, he, he travels from Haran to Canaan. Haran to Canaan. And, and the, the first thing that he does, and, and he's in the promised land. This is the first time the people of God are in the place of God in the Old Testament, which is the promised land. And when he gets there, what does God do? God comes to Abram to once again affirm the promise he made. Verse 7 says, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land, this land that you're in, to your offspring. So Abram built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Now, I want you to notice that God says, I will give this land to your descendants. God does not say, I'm giving it to you now. This is future tense. And when Abram lives out his days, he never sees it. When he dies, the promise is still unfulfilled. I mean, soon after this moment, Abram will flee down to Egypt, and then he comes back to the promised land, but he's a nomad. He never owns a single piece of property other than the grave of his wife, Sarah, before his death. He never saw the the promise fulfilled. Now, when, when I think about this and his journey in Genesis 12, I think, why did he go? Again, why, on the, why in the world would he say yes to this invitation from God? Go to a land, I'll show you. Why would Abram live out his days wandering around without a home? And the answer is faith. It's faith. Hebrews 11, it tells us why Abram did what he did. And it says this in Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. Some of you hate to go camping in tents, Abram spent his whole life in a tent. He spent his retirement tent camping. Now, why? Again, it's because of his faith in God. And, and, and here's what we need to understand about faith. When we think about faith, you know, faith, Hebrews tells us, is confidence in what we hope for and assurance of what we do not see. That's what Hebrews 11 tells us. When we think about Abram's faith. Here's what we need to understand. Having faith is not a Christian thing. It is a human thing. We all put our confidence and our assurance in something. You can't live without doing that. The the question is, what will you put it in? I have faith today that my Subaru Outback is gonna get me from here to home after church because there's a football game that I wanna watch and I'm planning on it. I'm making plans based on it. But I don't know for sure if my car is gonna get me home. I don't know that for sure. I haven't inspected the belts and the hoses and the transmission. Not that it would do any good if I did. Wouldn't even know what to look for. But I'm trusting that it will get me home. You see, we all put our faith in something every day. And, And I think in our world today, people put their confidence, they put their assurance in a variety of places. A lot of people put their faith in scientific progress or put their their faith in government policies. 
or in social progress or social development or in the economy or people put their faith, their, their confidence in their personality, in their hard work, in their net worth. I mean, understand, we all live putting our confidence, our hope into something. We can't not do it. And Abram, the, the, the power of the life of Abram, he was a flawed dude. But, but Abram consistently put his confidence in the promise of God. And that's how he lived his life. And his life invites us to do the same. It invites us to put our own trust in, the conf- in, our, in our confidence in God that he will keep his promises. I found myself thinking this week, Abram, you know, he roamed around like a stranger. He spent his life in tents. And the reason he did that was because he trusted God. And I found myself thinking, how does my life look different because I trust God? I mean, Abram, if you were to watch him and see him moving around with his tent, you would say, that makes no sense. Makes no sense. Apart from the fact that he trusted God. He trusted the promise of God. If you looked at me today, What about my life does not make sense apart from the fact that I trust God? Let me ask you, what what about your life makes no sense apart from the fact that you've put your confidence in God? What about the way you spend your money, the way that you are in relationships, the way you live your life, how is it different? You see, faith, faith is not just about where we go when we die. Faith is about how I live now. Where am I putting my confidence, my trust and so let's just sum up the story of Abram in this chapter. What do we see with Abram? Well, well, Abram, if you had to sum it up, this is what we see. Abram went to a land he did not know. Why? To share a blessing that he did not see. He never saw it. Because of a promise that he believed. It's what we see in this text. But this character, this story is pointing to a bigger story, to the true Abraham, to someone else who would come thousands of years later. And this story is just a dim hint. It's it's pointing forward to Jesus. Now, how is Jesus the one to whom the first Abraham, Abram, was pointing? How? Well, like Abram, we, we see that Jesus, he went to a land he did not know. Understand that when God comes to Abram and says, leave your land, leave your kindred, leave your father's house, Jesus left his land, the, the land of heaven. Jesus left his family, father, spirit, from eternity past he'd been in relationship with. And Jesus left his father's house. Philippians 2 tells us about This journey, it says, though he, though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or a thing to be held onto for advantage. But what did he do? Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. You know, we we love a good rags to riches story, don't we? Of somebody who is born in poverty and they work really hard and they pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, and they make something of their life, they accrue 
a certain amount of wealth. We love stories like that. This is the opposite. It is the ultimate riches to rags story. That Jesus would leave the throne of heaven to be born in the dirt. And though he was still God, this says he emptied himself of the privileges of being God and became a human, a full human. That Jesus was made fun of growing up by his brothers. Jesus had indigestion. Jesus probably had acne as a teenager. Jesus got lonely. I mean, imagine God in a body. And not only did he become human, Paul says he became a servant, which that word is slave. That's how it would have come across when he wrote this. That Jesus became a slave, and then he descended even further. Look at the next verse. It says, in being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. A death so gruesome that Roman law would not allow a Roman citizen to experience it. And that's how Jesus died. Why? Because the text tells us he humbled himself. He humbled himself. And that that word for humbled, that word is not used in hardly any literature in Greco-Roman culture. Because humility was not something that was revered. It was despised. You did not want to be humble. And yet the authors of the New Testament, in a word, they, describing what Jesus did, they say he humbled himself. And even more radical, Jesus invites us into that same journey of humbling ourselves. I learned this week that the word yuppie was born in the 1980s. Something was happening in the culture, and so somebody coined the phrase yuppie, which means young, upwardly mobile, uh, upwardly mobile professional. And it was describing something at the time in the 1980s that culture really valued, was being young, upwardly mobile. And it's what our culture values today, isn't it? We don't want to be tied down. We want to be young, upwardly mobile. Jesus models, again, the exact opposite. And Henry Nouwen, I love this quote, he says that the way of the Christian is not upwardly mo- upward mobility, but downward mobility, Ending in the cross. Jesus says, come and die. And we follow our Savior into that kind of a life. Now, why did Jesus do what he did? Why did he go to a land he did not know? Because like Abram, it was to share a blessing. It was to share a blessing that he did not see. The promise made to Abram finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Because when God says to Abram, all nations will be blessed through you, that's not true if it's just about Abram. If you have Chinese ancestry or African ancestry, you're not blessed through Abram. But because of Jesus, it's true that all nations are blessed. Why? Because through the line of Abram came Jesus Christ. And why did he come? For God so loved the world, the whole world, that Jesus came. That whoever believes... And so Jesus is the conduit for the blessing of God to the world, which is what Genesis 12 is about. And Paul, he recognizes this in Galatians 3. And look what Paul says. He says, he redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles, and that's me and you, through Christ Jesus. That by faith, 
we might receive the promise. We get to receive the promised blessing. And what is it? What is the blessing? It is life and forgiveness and reconciliation with God, adoption into his family forever. And we receive it. And I love that Paul uses the word receive because it reminds us, listen, we are blessed through Christ, not because of anything we do, not because we earned the blessing. We simply receive it because it's a gift. But like Abram, Jesus did not see that before he died. And Jesus saw in his mind that that would happen. But Jesus went to the cross, listen, and he died, he died with nothing. Jesus had one thing as he went to the cross, and it was taken away from him, his cloak. He died naked. He had nothing to call his own. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. And so we've got to wrestle with why. Why would Jesus do what he did? Why would Jesus go to a land he did not know to share a blessing that he would never see before he died? On the cross. Well, for Abram, you know, Abram, he did these things because of a promise that he believed. But if we're mapping Jesus onto Abram, here we have to depart because Jesus did not believe a promise. Jesus is the promise. Jesus is the promise of God through which we're saved. So why did Jesus do it? What motivated the heart of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to send Jesus Christ into the world to live? And to die. The, the amazing thing about God that we read in the Bible and that this text points us to is that Jesus went to a land he did not know to share a blessing he did not see because of a people that he loved. You see, that is why Jesus went from heaven to be born in the dirt. It's because of a people that he loved. And, and the people, you and I, that, that he loved, we did nothing to deserve it. Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, a detail that is easy to miss in Genesis 12, the, the, the text we're looking at today, a detail that is easy to miss is a place called Shechem. We read it, but again, Genesis 12, 6, Abram, he traveled through the land. He's in the promised land for the first time. As far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. And in that chapter, what happens at Shechem? Well, God shows up to Abram for the third time, and God promises again to bless him. Now, Shechem is one of the most important pieces of geography in the whole Old Testament. I think next to Mount Zion in Jerusalem, this is the most important piece of geography. You say, what's so special about Shechem? Well, we, Shechem is a place where so many things happen in the Old Testament. Just, just a few examples. Shechem is the place where Jacob, who is Abraham's grandson, Jacob comes to Shechem and he takes the idols from his family members and he's supposed to burn them, but he doesn't. He buries them at the same tree, at the oak of Shechem. A little bit later, Jacob sends his son Joseph to find his brothers, to find Joseph's brothers at where? At Shechem. But Joseph can't find them. They're nowhere to be found. And so he wanders a little bit further and then he gets sold into slavery. A little bit later in the Old Testament, we read 
that, that Joshua, as a new leader of Israel, he, he helps Israel to renew their covenant, the Mosaic covenant, to say, we will seek God, we will serve God, we will obey God. And where do they renew the covenant? At Shechem. And do they do it? Do, does Israel obey the covenant? No. They blow it. And they're exiled from the promised land because of it. So here's what you need to know about Shechem. Shechem is the place of Israel's failure. This is the place where over and over and over again they blow it. And this is the place where centuries before any of that fail, any of those mistakes, God comes to Abram and says, I love you and I promise to bless you, apart from anything you'll do. Do you see the picture here? At the precise place, God knows where Israel will fail. God, knowing all of that, says to this man, I'm gonna bless you and your family and your descendants. Because that's who God is. But it gets even better. Because thousands of years later, the true Abraham, Jesus Christ, he also came to Shechem. And when Jesus came to Shechem, he has a very specific encounter. He meets someone and he gives this person the ultimate blessing because Jesus, he invites her into relationship with himself to be a worshiper of, of, of him in spirit and in truth. You see, he offers her living water who does Jesus meet at Shechem? The woman at the well. A Samaritan, pagan, immoral woman. Literally the opposite of everything you wanted to be in that day. You wanted to be male. You wanted to be Jewish. You wanted to be moral and upright. She's none of those things. And Jesus comes to this broken woman. And he gives her grace. Because that's who God is. And this is who he loves. Understand that, do you know today that Jesus loves you like that? That in full view of all of your weaknesses and failures and struggle and your faith, which is pitiful at times like mine, and all of the areas where we just limp through this life because we're broken and we can't do it. In view of all of that, God through Christ comes to you and says, I'm gonna give you the ultimate blessing. And it's unconditional. See, thousands of years ago, God at Shechem made a promise, and he keeps it today. And that's our hope. Do you know today that God loves you like that? The kinds of people that God loves are not the ones who have it all together. It's the people who are broken and a mess, just like me, just like you. So what do we do with this today? Two things. One, I think we marvel at the grace of God. That we have a God that is like this. That we have a God who became human. He went to a land he did not know to share a blessing he never saw because he loved us and he gave his life. It's to, to, to just marvel at the grace of God. And then secondly, in view of that, here's the invitation for us. It's to trust 
It's to lean into the promise of God that he is faithful. Because there's all kinds of things that we don't know, places we're uncertain. You know, God's coming to some of us today maybe and saying, go to a land I'll show you. There's some part of your life where he is prompting you, compelling you in obedience to him to follow him and it's scary. And in view of this, listen, in view of the gospel, we say, yes, God, we trust you wherever you lead. Because Abram did not know what we know. You see, we know what Abram never could, what he never could have imagined. Not only that God is trustworthy, that God keeps his promises, but that God became human and died in our place. And so in view of that today, we say, okay, God, I trust you. Show me what that looks like, God, to trust you more and more. Let's pray. Father, we're amazed at your grace, your loving kindness, and at this chapter of Scripture, which just points us to the faithfulness and love of Jesus. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to know, how how do we respond to this? How do we marvel at your grace? And then how do we put our faith into practice and trust you? with our finances, with our relationships, with our time. Lord, help us to be a people who put our confidence in you, our assurance in you. So God, we just worship you now. We respond to who you are. We do this in Jesus' name, amen.